welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. Hey Ben, welcome to the Mind Chimp Podcast. How are we doing? Yeah, I'm really, really good, Danny. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. The sun's shining, so I, I can't complain, I guess. Oh, well, you must be in a better part of the world than I am, because it is uh, it's pouring down with rain where I am. Oh, wow. Best make full use of this, then. Get out in yeah. the sunshine after this uh, podcast. Yeah, quite. So, I guess, Ben, obviously, before we, we jump into who, who, who Ben Betts is and kind of what it's all about, I asked you to kind of summarise you and who you are and kind of but in, in a log line in a very summary kind of view so can you remember what you said i have to look it up if i'm being perfectly honest danny i've never been asked to do a log line before so i i kind of had to have a google about about what it would be and, and what i landed on was that my log line would be that ben betts is uh, an easily distracted technology geek who got roped into the world of online learning and now can't leave <laughs> I love it. There's just so much about that logline what I love. Kind of get roped into L&D, the, the technology geek. It's perfect. It's perfect. And the, the, the fact that you can't leave. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we will jump into that at some point as well. Yeah. So um, before we get in, Ben, I guess the two big questions which you asked right at the start is kind of, you know, when you was, when you was in school and the teacher would ask you, what is it you want to be when you grow up, Ben? What What was the answer you'd give him? Yeah, I don't. Well, to be honest with you, I don't think the teachers had any particular thoughts that I'd ever aspire to be anything. So, um, so it didn't. It didn't really cross their minds. I was a, I, I was a nondescript student, shall we say, at school. I didn't cause particular trouble. I wasn't particularly exceptional. So I think it kind of went by. I think I did a. a I I wanted to be two things, and then there was a, a a test that you took which told you what you should be. And the the two things I'd wanted to be were was uh, I originally wanted to be a pilot. And then I wanted to be a vet, but those two things both both got subsumed by various other things. So I wanted to be a pilot until it, eventually I'd sat next to my mum on enough flights going abroad that she convinced me we were all about to die. And <laughs> and at that point, I'm not sure that's great parenting, and that doesn't reflect well on my mother, who is otherwise a very good parent. But um, she was so terrified of flying that literally, I just over time, as like, when you're young. You don't pick up on that sort of thing. But then eventually, after a while, being sat next to a person who is convinced they're about to be obliterated every time you take off kind of rubs off on you. So um, so that kind of put pay to that. I, I now travel so much that it's not really a factor. But it, I, the formative years, I couldn't be a pilot anymore because I was definitely going to be killed in a horrific plane crash. And then a vet, I went to, I went to do some work experience at a, an animal charity here in the UK called the Blue Cross and um most of that involved clearing up dog muck and cat muck and then being bitten by various animals for for the, for a week and then eventually they were like oh do you want to go and see some surgery so i got to go and see a dog being castrated that was the end of the vet dream that 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 immediately stopped about three and a half seconds after that that theater experience began because it turns out i can't hack that sort of thing and then, and then finally, it leads me to, to the, the career recommendation service. So there was actually like some test date I had to take or everyone took at school. And it sort of came back with what your ideal career was. And I can't remember the precise result, but it was vaguely along the lines of you should be a systems analyst, which wow. is pretty much what I am, <laughs> if, I'm being, if I'm being honest. What I actually am is a guy who sort of translates between between technical people and not so technical people most of the time. So it turns out that whatever test that was, that at the time we were like, oh, that's crap, that's never going to work. This this test rubbish, incredibly accurate. 
So, you know, kudos to whoever set up that assessment 15, 20 years ago. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So, wow. From vet to pilot and then kind of full circle. And we're definitely going to touch upon that. I'm definitely, I'm sure of that. So, what, before we get into kind of who better bets is, I ask my um, guests to pick four numbers randomly from one to a hundred. So could you do that, please? Can I have the same number twice or is that breaking the rules? That's breaking the rules, Ben. That's breaking the rules. I'm glad you asked the question, though. No? <laughs> I, uh, I shall have three, 35, um, 72 and 100. Perfect. We'll come back to them later on down the line. Fine. So Ben, you know, I, I know I know who Ben Betts is. I know all about kind of H two uh, H T two. Um I met you and Craig uh Craig Taylor at the an LPI. Um I was yep. one of the judges there. Um yes. and I was like, Wow, this is awesome. So I kind of followed you but never really met you beforehand. Um but yeah, maybe maybe if you could give the listeners a bit of an overview of kind of who you are, where you've come from and to kind of get you to where you are right now would be ace. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I started off my sort of career as a web developer, a web designer, and um, and got sort of, I say, this is part of my logline, sort of roped into the world of online learning. So, you know, eventually started picking up e-learning type jobs um, as part of the web design. My father, who actually founded HT2 Labs, was, was in the e-learning world before me. And so I ended up picking up some gigs for his company and um and sort of slowly but surely my web design repertoire became became my e-learning repertoire um and and so i i founded a little company um, that was then bought by ht2 a few years later and um and i've been involved in ht2 since about 2005 2006. Um, at the time we were a very small custom learning developer sort of doing you know my first projects were doing the CDs that went in the back of textbooks and things like that, um, which is going to sound ancient to anybody who, A, doesn't buy a textbook, has got no idea what a CD is or anything else like that. So, uh, and I did ship some things on floppy disks. Actually, on my desk, I, had, I have a, a floppy disk, which is I, I use as a coaster uh, now, but it's actually got one of my first sort of pieces of e-learning on it, um, if I could find something to put it into. Um, so this was sort of late 90s, early 2000s, then moving to HT2 in, in 2005, 2006. Um, I went back to study and do a, a doctorate at the University of Warwick starting in 2009. And that drew me towards ideas of, of social learning. So, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been in and around the industry for, for 10, 15 years, but it was only really then that I got serious about researching what what learning was, what online learning was, what was working, what was not, and how we could do things better. And I was drawn to the idea of, of people learning from people, thinking that actually a lot of the stuff that I'd done and designed and, and been responsible for was, was quite isolating. It, it was kind of one person picking through an experience by themselves, which for me was a bit of the, the antithesis of what, uh, what I believed a good learning experience often was. So I've become quite passionate about social did my doctorate focused on that. And then at the back of that, we, we changed direction of the company of HG2 Labs to, to become HG2 Labs, to become an innovator and to, to, to focus on developing pieces of software as opposed to pieces of content. And, and that was kind of my, my shift there was to think that, that content was becoming more abundant. You know, there's a lot of content coming out just from, from every possible angle. And from a business level, it's quite hard to, to, to turn a big buck on, on content because you have to put a lot of effort in to make something that, that's uh, of a reasonable standard. 
Um, so we turned more towards software and with a particular focus on social learning. And, and that's really where you find us today. We're a software company that produces innovative pieces of learning technology for use mostly in professional services type organizations. Okay, awesome. So, you know, I think education, you know, just listening to your story, education has been important to you one way or another. And maybe maybe if you could share your story about the, um, you know, your PhD and kind of first time round and not getting it, maybe? Well, yeah, so I didn't, I, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a unique or relatively unique individual. I, f- I don't think you can be relatively unique, but whatever, I'll call myself unique because <laughs> I don't know anybody else who's done this. I, uh, my, my record in formal education is checkered to say the least. Um, like, got my GCSE results, um, so sort of the sort of post-16 qualification here in the UK, and they were, they were fine. I, I did quite well in science, which wasn't really expected of me. So I went on to do an A-level in biology. That was a disaster. It turns out I know nothing about that, and I'm completely unteachable when it comes to that subject. So dropped out, had to do some other subjects, blah, blah, blah. Went to university with, with some A-levels. They were all right. I went to the University of Exeter here in the UK, which is a fairly good university, and, and actually studied cognitive science, which was, uh, again, a great choice given what I do 15 years later, but at the time I probably wasn't ready for it. And so cognitive science was all about artificial intelligence and things like this, but this is back in 2000 or actually before that, 99. And uh, eventually after two years of muddling my way through, I, I actually dropped out. Um, so uh, I was running my, my web design business and actually it looked like a better option for me than continuing to study and and scrape by. So I left university uh, at the end of my second year um, and didn't didn't graduate. Um, years went by and I, I found that I was missing or I felt like I was missing the credibility of having a, a college degree, a university degree, and managed to, to, to get on to a university master's course by virtue of having done a bit of undergraduate work and by virtue of having sort of made and sold a company. They sort of gave me some credibility for to do an MBA and study business administration. So I did that, and then I used that to, to then get onto my, my PhD course at Warwick. Long and short of it is that I've got a PhD, but I don't have a first degree, and I have crappy A-levels and, and things like that. So if people are thinking that, I, that you know, maybe it's them or maybe it's the, the son or the daughter that's going through that period of time right now, you don't have to be dictated to by the expectations. The expectations of me at, 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 at initial sort of formal education were not particularly high. And I didn't engage with it very well. But years later, once I'd found my passion, my passion in learning and uh, and in technology, education made a lot more sense to me. And I actually became really hungry to to want to learn. Whereas back in the sort of formal education days, it was more that you had to learn. You had no choice. That didn't really jive with me, or at least I didn't really get on very well with it. So it's only really been as a, as a case of of wanting to learn that things have come together for me and and yeah that's why i say i'm relatively unique because i don't know anybody else that's got a phd but hasn't actually got a first bachelor's degree i love it i love it i guess we have a kind of a similar um story because i i, I did something similar to where i um i dropped out second year into university um because when i looked at kind of when i did a bit of horizon scanning you know the role which it was for was for um forensic and criminal investigation Mm. Um, and then when I looked at kind of the availability of um, opportunities once you come out of university, you had to either wait for someone to either die or retire <laughs> for that position to open up. And then when that did happen, you had to compete against probably four or five years worth of 
yeah, you know, yeah. students. So I just decided to, like, like you, I guess, kind of look at the other options outside of that. And uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's good. To, it's good to know that um, you did something quite similar in a way. Yeah, it's always refreshing when you see people that don't necessarily go through those, you know, those prescribed paths and, and things like that. And it is a viable option because, I, you know, I, I guess a lot of young people, especially at this time of year as they approach exams and, and other things like that and graduating from the university or thinking about it, there'll be a, a lot of thoughts about, you know, what you should do or what you must do. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so what I thought I'd do is I'll read out some buzzwords. And uh, I want you to tell me what comes to mind when I say these words. Sure. So, first one is XAPI. Um, oh, well, I mean, the first word that comes to my head is specification, which is, you know, dull as, as ditch water. Um, so XAPI is a big part of what we do at HT2 Labs, but at the end of the day, it's a document. It's a way of doing something. So a lot of people might think, you know, they, they hear XAPI in the future, data, other things like that. At the end of the day, XAPI itself is, is fairly dull. It's a, it's a way of communicating. It's a specification document. So I spend, I have a, quite a bipolar life on one hand telling people that XAPI is the future and you need to embrace and do everything with XAPI. And on the other hand, uh, I play it down a little bit to say, you know, at the end of the day, what it is is a document. It's an important document, but it's a document. And that's you know, when people say, oh, it's a bit slow to be adopted or where's the evidence or where's that? I'm like, you're talking about a word doc, guys. Like, you know, Who's getting massively excited about a document that says you should collect data this way or that way? It's a miracle that anybody talks about it at all, um, let alone <laughs> let alone uses it. Because at the end of the day, it's fairly dull stuff, and it's quite quite niche, you know, in the big scheme of the world. Um, so yeah, I had bad result. XAPI specification. <laughs> I think just linking back to um, an article which you wrote, I think, or maybe it was a blo- you know a blog article, yeah. and it was about. Um, XAPI and kind of a World War Two story, yes. Um, and I just thought I was one a great show of kind of storytelling and and the, the importance of vlogging. Um, but yeah, I, I found that really fascinating that story. Um, yes, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant story. Um, so this is this is my my grandfather and my wife's grandfather um, in World War Two. So my grandfather was a, a pilot, a bomber pilot, and um, he survived long enough to go and train other pilots. Uh, and navigators and my wife's grandfather was a navigator he was a few years younger and um, we knew that my grandfather had gone to train train people in Canada and that my wife's grandfather trained in Canada so we knew there might be a coincidence here there was a chance that they had met but thousands of people were involved in this endeavor so so maybe not fortunately my wife's grandfather would later go on to be an accountant so he kept absolutely perfect records of everything that he did and one of those things he had was a logbook and now, now I expect that a lot of was fairly standard procedure, but his was well filled out and he kept the damn thing. So 72 years later, we dug it out of, of uh, my father-in-law's loft. And there it was that uh, on one of those particular log entries in, in July 43, my grandfather was the pilot on my wife's grandfather training mission, um, which was, you know, just a bizarre, bizarre coincidence um, that, that 72 years later, you think of all the things that, that could have happened. You know, it was World War II. These people didn't survive. But for people to not only survive, but to meet, to thrive, to have their children, for their children to have children and to meet was an incredible thing. And then it kind of came together for me because I only knew this because somebody had made a training log 
And at the end of the day, that's what, what the XAPI encourages us to do is to log what happens. So, you know, it's quite anecdotal. I guess there's no real importance in the big scheme of things, but just goes to show 72 years later, a training log can give some people a, a, a cheap thrill. So you never know. Awesome. It's such a good story. So next word is social learning. Yeah, stolen. Um, stolen would be my, uh, my my take on social learning. We, we, stole, we absolutely stole social learning. So those of us that work in learning technology, social learning became a thing. Well, right around the time that I started uh, researching, doing things maybe a bit before, it, it became a trend. I'm not sure that it's so much of a trend anymore. It's just a tool in, in people's arsenal, something that can be used or a way of, of learning. But, I mean, we absolutely stole it. Um, social learning is a term comes from, from psychology, from social psychology, particularly child psychology and, and areas by research by a chap called Albert Bandura. This goes back to the 60s and 70s where, where they were studying how, how children learnt from and with each other. Um, there's other aspects to it as well. There's lots of research in academic circles that's, that, that is around the notion of social learning. So there's areas like computer-supported collaborative learning or CSCL, which is how folks learn from each other in, in online forums. There's lots of other social theories like self-efficacy, how do you judge how good you are at something compared to other people. So social learning is this massive umbrella term that we certainly didn't invent here in learning technology, but but we stole it and we've appropriated it for our for our users. Often gets very confused with social media. And and there's uh, you know the, the there are aspects of social learning that could be facilitated with social media tools, but the two don't have to mean the same thing. So, so yeah, social learning, uh, we stole it. We appropriated it for our use. That's fine. I don't think that's any problem. Um, but it's just a very, very large term in terms of the things that it could encompass from social media to child psychology to self-efficacy uh, and everything in between. There's a lot that could be social learning. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, someone put a post out on LinkedIn recently saying, what is social learning? And I said, well, it depends in what in what sense you're using it. For me, social learning is I use social media tools to, for learning, for learning platforms, or be it you know, anything. It could be Snapchat, your Instagram, you could be wherever you want. Um, I'm a firm believer of fish where the fish live. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes it can definitely be taken out of, out of kind of context of what it's all about. Um, and just going back to kind of, you know, looking at children's studies, for them who don't really want to, you know, read into into the kind of, the, the you know, the documentation and stuff behind this, I think you can see it in just um, a real simple TV program like The Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds. Yeah, yeah, no, you see, there's a brilliant show, brilliant show for, 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 for showing all aspects of, of sort of mimicry and, and reactivity to people and things. So I, I talk about social as being sort of three things are being learning from people, learning with people and learning in the presence of people. So learning from people, teacher, apprentice, master apprentice sort of routine. I'm going to learn something from Danny today. Danny's the teacher. Um, learning with people is a bit more community orientated. You know, getting into this, this group of people and the purpose is that we, we, we hopefully could achieve something new. And learning in the presence of people is just the the way in which you react and you do things because people are there. I think that's something that we really miss out on on, on technology, especially e-learning. E-learning specifically is quite isolating in that way because, you know, you can take a, a multiple choice quiz or something online and 
you get 90%, you're like, all right, crack on. But if everybody else in the world gets 100%, or if everybody else in the world gets 10%, that that changes your opinion of, of your own self-worth, of your own position, of, of what you could and should learn in the world, and, and you know, knowing when you're done with something. And, and so simple measures of how good I am compared to other people have often been taken away in online learning. And I think that's a, a big missed opportunity. Because it's certainly the sort of thing I would do in the real world. I'm very, I'm, I'm very bad at learning, generally speaking, because if I'm not brilliant at it straight away, then I just like, give up instantly. Like, I want to be the best. If we play a new game and I don't win, then I'll go off in a sulk. Like, that's a stupid <laughs> game. Never going to do it. But, I, you know, if I was always playing by myself, I'd think I was a genius at all of these things. It's only when you realise that actually other people are vastly superior in many different ways that, you, that I actually narrow my fields of interest to the things that maybe I could compete on. Perfect. I love it. And, and we've probably kind of touched on it, but the, ne the next one would have been um, click next e-learning. Yeah. I, I Well, banish the next button was a, a tagline that I had for, for, for a lot of years um, and would, would still be, would still be there. It's, I don't know. I mean, I, to be honest with you, Danny, it's been such a long time since I actually looked at or authored a piece of click next e-learning that, you know, it, it's almost a bit of a parody itself to me at the moment. I, I appreciate there's still a lot of people authoring a lot of things that are in these self-contained bits and they're, I'm, I'm sure they're having some success with it. It just seems, it seems like, like you know, I talked about the CD-ROM and the floppy disk. It seems like a medium that isn't long for this world. Um, if you know what I mean, it, it seems like e-learning in particular evokes, a, 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 for me, the phrase e-learning evokes the medium of the slide, the next button and, and things like that. And it just strikes me that it's not long for this world. It's not, it's not appropriate for the way in which people learn online, people use online tools, people consume content, people interact with each other. So I wonder... I wonder if it's going the way of the floppy disk. And I've got no actual evidence to suggest it is. There are some research papers that suggest the market for that sort of e-learning is, is declining. Ambient Insight put one out a couple of years ago that suggested that was in significant decline. But I've also had a lot of conversation with vendors of, of that sort of learning who say their services have never been more in demand. So, um, you know, there's, there's a mixed picture there in terms of what and how that that medium is existing but for me i think we're, we're moving beyond we're moving beyond the floppy disk and we're moving to a world where the click next to continue probably isn't long or i hope not long for for what we do awesome here here i'm completely agreeing with that i think probably the last time i created some e-learning was probably around about e-learning in the sense of kind of you know your whole your whole id kind of module kind of thing was probably about four years ago and i just i just think it's hard because on these podcasts I'm, I'm trying my best to kind of remain impartial but i just think with something like that it's so hard because it didn't work four years ago and it's not working now but yet you know at the moment i'm kind of i'm in between roles and when i'm looking at the industry and looking at kind of you know what roles are interesting they're all still demanding id you know yeah. i'm like what Really? Come on, let, let's get up to speed of our user, our person who f fundamentally, excluding a business, is the most important thing here. Um, but yeah, okay, um, I went off on a tangent, sorry about that. <laughs> um, so if I was to ask you, Ben, you know, if you had to give three people a gift and the gift had to be a book, what book would it be? What book would it be? I see, I'm very liable to just talk about the last book I read because I, I, I don't have... Uh, a, a wonderful memory 
um, uh, for these things. And I tend to, what tends to happen, this is, this is social learning in action for me, is that I tend to read a book and then appropriate its, its results into sort of my thinking and start exploring and, uh, and going through things there. I think the one that, the, the book that, that had a profound impact on my research and uh, my work and that I do recommend people read, although a lot of people have, was a book by a chap called Daniel Pink called Drive. And that was about what motivates people. And, you know, one of the, one of the, the big sort of bugbears in our industry or uh, e-learning, learning technology in general that has been, how can we motivate users or, you know, how do we exploit a user's self-motivation to get them doing more? We, we, I think we all come into the industry with a fundamental belief that learning, learning could bring freedom to people, that people who are capable of learning, capable of assimilating new knowledge, are generally in control of their lives a little bit better than those people who don't have, who aren't afforded access to those opportunities. Um, you know, I've been very, very lucky to be afforded access to a lot of different learning opportunities, be it the things I dropped out of or be it the things that I, I completed. And, and as a result, different life experiences have, have come to me. So, you know, I've got a fundamental belief that that's important, but then that sort of grinds up against the reality of, well, you know, I dropped out, you dropped out. Um, was that motivation? Was that timing? Was it the right thing, the right thing? And we've got a lot of, of trouble around engagement, things like that. Dan Pink's book, Drive, summarized an academic theory, basically, called self-determination theory. So it, he actually triggered me to go back and look at all of the research that was underneath that. His books, you know, it's a pop psychology book. It's, it's no great shakes, but it was important to me because it gave a very easy framework for me to, to hang some thoughts around and then uh, gave me a, a lot of opportunity to, to, to go back and really explore the research. So I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend that. If not that, then I, I read a lot of autobiographies, to be honest with you. I, I love reading about other people's lives. Um, I just got done with Elon Musk biography, not an autobiography by, I think, Ashley Vance, um, which was interesting. Um, not because I want to be him. Well, I'd like to be him in terms of some of the aspects of his life. I've got no interest in being him from a personality standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> and then and various things like that. So I do read a lot of biographies, and I think they give an interesting window um, into, into other people's lives, which I guess taps into the, the voyeur sort of nature of, of wanting to, you know, wanting to know what makes other people tick. Yeah, definitely. I was, um, I was reading, I can't, actually might have been on a podcast I was listening to, um, about Musk and he was saying he, he can't stand the colour yellow <laughs> and the problem is is in the um, in his you know his factories or whatever they, they've got a high rate of kind of incidents happening and what <laughs> the problem what they're having is because they're not marking out the floor because of the yellow yeah. you know the yellow to kind of say the path is which you need to stay on um, so we had a whole podcast around people going into his kind of you know his factory or whatever and having a look at why this high rate of incidents and one of the things was is he can't stand the, the color yellow which obviously for people in who work in kind of factory environments or whatever environments yellow is kind of uh, there for a reason it's not just yeah. uh, it's not a color choice of favor it's just there for a reason that's so, yeah. fascinating i'm not surprised but it's fascinating so and we've probably already touched upon one of them already then but i mean what has been your your favorite negative positive moment which is weird to say but what what's been the thing in you you know in the moment where you've, where you deemed it as a negative, and maybe a year, you know, two years, however many years, months later, 
looking back on it, you've gone actually that was that was the pinnacle moment for for this great success or for this positive moment. What I'm in now. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, you could look at some of the big ones, like you know, dropping out of university was a was a, was a low point for lots of different reasons, and but I probably wouldn't be here today if if I hadn't done that. Maybe I'd be doing better. So uh, you never know. The, I guess there's one moment where I had a bit of an epiphany that's very very small in my world, but but it but it but it changed me a bit. We released a, an update to a piece of our software, and we'd moved a. A text box. So one of the things you can do in, in in one of our pieces of software is you can you can make levels of different curated content, and you can have a, a description of that in terms of you know this is what's inside this level. And we moved it. We it was still there, but it was it was moved. And um, I got on the phone with a client, and the client was was just beside themselves, beside themselves with. Um, that we'd moved this text box said this had ruined the software for them they this is the only reason they used this software was because because this text box was in this specific place and we had to change it and um you know I, I, this uh, we're a good customer service organization so we listened we did the work we changed it uh, we changed either changed it back or changed it to something that was acceptable and we did it in a rush and, and all the rest of it clients still still with us today um but that was that was my moment where. Um, how do you feel about swearing on this podcast, Danny? Go for it; it's fine. I, I like. I'm just so sick of that sort of level of bullshit. That like that. Well, there was a quote from a, a TV show that I watched in the moment, just on the other night. Billions. Um, oh yeah, that's good. And, uh, the, the quote was actually talking about the charity sector, but I could have I could I could have brought it into ours. Where to paraphrase. Um, the reason why everything matters is in, in e-learning is because the stakes are so low. Um, right? The only reason that, that, that somebody's basically crying down the phone to me at that point is because there's nothing bigger in their life than where, where that is. And you're like, that isn't why I got into this industry. I did not get into online learning to minorly influence the way that a large corporate organization does something very mandatory that nobody enjoys. Um, you know, that's low stakes stuff. I'm not here for low stakes stuff. We do some low stakes stuff because that's what you do to make money or to move on or, or, or whatever. But what I'm really interested in is, is changing the way that people do online learning. Even if that's just a little bit, I'm desperate to try and move us forward away from, you know, e-learning things we've talked about and the past mistakes. So that was a, a moment for me where um, I decided that, at that moment that I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be the company that, that, that bowed down to all of those requests that just did stuff because it was easy or, or, you know, because input boxes need to be input boxes. This is how software evolves where you end up with thousands of click boxes and stuff like that. I mean, nobody sets out to make a shitty learning management system. Nobody sits out around a table and it's like, guess what guys, my business plan is we'll make a terrible bit of software that everybody hates, and then we'll be billionaires. I mean, it's not its not the plan, is it? Mm. They, they set out with ambitions, and then, you know, there's a, another saying that, that we have with our product management team um, here is that the, you know, the, what you're trying to do here is to, to lose the battle to becoming a learning management system as slowly as possible. That's basically their job when it comes to all of our products. Lose the battle to becoming a learning management system as slowly as possible because the feature creep that comes in on in our sector in particular 
is is incredible. This one system that has to do all of these different things. So anyway, that was that was my moment where I thought, no, I want to stick to my guns and I want to do things the way that I want to do them. And and this is why we call ourselves the the R and D company for learning and performance because we're interested in doing things that are different. We we talk about being a place of firsts, about doing things for the first time, uh, about being the partner that people have when they want to innovate and do something different. And we talk about building opinionated software. So not just software that, that has the input boxes exactly where you want it for this particular use case or, or you know, is, is, is a very sort of white label thing. Pieces of software that embody methods. So like our software learning locker embodies the XAPI method. If you don't like XAPI, you're not going to use learning locker. That's fine because I've got an opinion about what XAPI is and how it should work for us. And that's the same with, with everything we do is we build opinionated software because without that, I just feel like we'll, we'll lose control and lose purpose of, of everything. So that really has shaped one moment where one person crying down the phone to me because I moved a text box. I'm like, this is so low stakes that I just can't, I can't deal with it. We've got to do something more meaningful here. And hopefully that, that led to us rebranding, repositioning, releasing more products and, and having a bit of faith in, in what it is we do. It's really interesting you talk about kind of, you know, why people get into this and why we do what we do because, you know, they don't want to just do it to make a million pounds and, and leave. They do it because I either want to change the face of learning or they want to do, you know, they want to create something which is unique and which challenges, even if challenged for kind of just asking the question of why. I think um, this week alone I've had, so I've had a lot of people come in and ask how do we create learning communities because one of the biggest things which I did was I created a, um, a WhatsApp community. So when I kind of got into L&D, I was like, you know what, one, I, there's too much noise. There's too much noise to kind of be on top of everything. And actually, no, there was no community where you could be safe and tap into this community and kind of, you know, and have, have the information come to me rather than me seek it out. Probably a point of laziness, really, as well. Mm. So I was like, right, well, it's not out there, so I'm going to create it. I'm going to create a learning a community where people can just be themselves, share information, share knowledge, and have a real-time tool rather than kind of like a, just a forum where, you know, you put a question out there and it might not get any traction. But for me, that was about, you know, the reason why I created that, it, it served its purpose. Within two weeks, it was easy for me. I could have just kind of stepped out of that group and it would have managed itself. But for me, it served a purpose for a few different ring, things. One of them being a safe haven to challenge each other, challenge ideas and different thinking. Um, and to just, yeah, kind of filter out the noise and, and it's not my really my, I wouldn't say it's my signature piece or anything of any sorts, but it's one of the things where now where I think people are coming to me asking, how do we create, you know, social communities and stuff like that? And yeah, the reason wasn't to make lots and lots of money. It wasn't to do anything other than just create something which served a purpose for me and actually just made things a little bit better for other people. I think that's that would be a really common thing for people because you know the 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 amount of resilience, persistence, and stuff that it takes to to start things and keep things going means that if you were just in it for a particular cynical reason or you know just the cash or whatever, you didn't have that motivation. These things wouldn't get started, and they would certainly wouldn't survive. So you know, and it is difficult. You know, easy people come to you and say. You know, how do I build a learning community? Like, well, <laughs> you are going to have to open your checkbook now because it isn't going to be one answer. There isn't going to be one thing that comes here. It is a process. There are lots of variables. There is lots of opportunity, but there are lots of risks. And, you know, what's right for, for one group of people coming together on a WhatsApp group that just clicks might not be right for somebody else. So, you know, it, 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 
wonderful to hear that you've had that success. But I do think it is as a result of being passionate about something that change can actually occur because otherwise you just you just don't you can't stick at it long enough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something else will attract your attention and that's where your your passion into what it is you want to do gets challenged as well. Um so if I was to ask you kind of what hey, let's go with this one first. So if I was to ask you what you do, but I want you to explain it to like you was going to explain it to a three year old, how would you how would you wrap that up? If I was explaining to a three year old what I do um that's a great question i mean i guess i'd explain i'd say as little as is humanly possible um and that wouldn't make any sense to them but my job is to make other people busy basically um that's that's what i do so um one of the things that you find out when you you, you in charge of a, of a growing company is you know demands on your time are extreme and uh, everybody wants a piece of you and 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 it you quickly become a bottleneck. You quickly become a thing that decisions can't get made without you or your blessing. All work comes through you. All clients want to talk to you and, and everything like that. So one of the first things or the only thing that I really have to do is to, to make myself redundant. Every time, I, every time I find myself doing something a lot, I need to get somebody else doing it because it just consumes me. The, 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 the three things that, that, that I do um, on, a, on a day-to-day basis are basically again not a good answer for three or maybe we'll come back to it vision team and money those are the three things that i do so well, one is that i i set the tone i set the vision i set the purpose for what it is we want to do for how we want to change learning and 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 make sure that other people agree with me or that enough people agree with me that we can get a group of us together and do something about it two is that i recruit people so i recruit people that help put me out of the job that help make be redundant that that help free up those bottlenecks and and three is i make sure that we've got enough money to keep the people going so that we can reach the vision um and sometimes that looks like sales or 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 looking at what's going on there sometimes it looks like external fundraising and grants and and other initiatives like that but yeah my job's vision team and money how you explain that to a three-year-old i'm not entirely sure okay that's cool that's fine so if I was to say to you, you know, three people who jump out at you right now, maybe it's people who have been in the industry um, for a while. Maybe it's people who have who are new to the scene or kind of, who's the three people who's kind of getting your attention at the moment within learning development? Let's put it, yeah, let's wrap it up into just learning development. So um, three people jumping at me at the moment. Um, I've got a lot of time for and have spent quite a bit of time with Julian Stodd, um, who talks about, um, social uh, and extraction and extraction that, that that goes way beyond the stuff I talk about. So I'm I'm quite operational. When I talk about social, I talk about solutions and technology and, and other things like that. Julian takes a lot of my ideas and uh, he doesn't take my ideas, takes his ideas. But he, you know, he's at that other end of that strategic scale of things, which is something that I could learn a lot from in terms of the actual cultural significance of some of the changes some of the things that i advocate for i probably don't pay enough attention to and julian does a really good job of of telling stories and looking a bit like a pirate whilst he does it which you know <laughs> uh, I, I i should i should channel that i'm, I'm pretty beige looking at the moment so i i probably need to uh, to channel some of that i agree i i i i'm interested in and um listen and watch to uh, a lot of what Nick Shackleton Jones is posting 
um, Nick from, from PA Consulting at the moment. We've worked with Nick um, historically over the years, and a lot of our ideas are similar. And some of them are not. Um, and, and Nick's position can come across as quite cynical um, um, about learning in various ways. And other times it might just be accurate truth-telling. He's always one that, that helps me um, push a little bit. So, you know, again, I push for solutions and he probably pushes to think about why you're bothering in the first place, um, which is, uh, you know, a tough position um, to, to take, one that I don't always agree with. Um, and in fact, I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but he makes really good points and he makes you think. Um, so I, I think he's quite important. There aren't enough people like him um, in, in our industry. Um, third person, uh, there's, there's actually a group of people. There's a, there's a, so this is a, a cheat, but I'm, I'm, you know, much like you say you have your WhatsApp group, I have a Facebook group. Um, mostly US people. So one of the things that we don't get an awful lot of cross-pollination between uh, e-learning thought leaders, if that's the phrase you subscribe to in, in the UK and those in the USA, they, they pop over from time to time, a few of ours go over there. But, um, you know, there's not a lot of, of cross-pollination. I, I got invited to a, a group of people that involves a lot of luminaries of, of the US scene, people who are, are well-known over here for their, their writing, uh, Julie Dirks and Cammie Bean, Clark Quinn, other people like that. It's fascinating to see what bothers them on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, so much, much like your, your WhatsApp group, you know, there's some bits in there that are, that are learning or, or, or the rest of it. But overwhelmingly, it's, it's, it's being able to tap into what bothers a whole set of these people on a day-to-day -day basis that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'm more of a lurker. I don't contribute an awful lot. I also feel a bit guilty because, you know, I'm a vendor. I, I, I'm, they're all vendors of learning at some point. The other, I just have a more specific product to sell. So, you know, I try and keep my counsel a little bit, but it is fascinating seeing what bothers people when you get to see behind the facade a little bit. Yeah, awesome. So I, I know Nick pretty well, um, MPA, well, the LPI guys with MPA. Um, so, yeah, and I think sometimes sometimes we need them provocateurs. We need them people to maybe, maybe you know, maybe you don't agree with their, their ideas, but actually it sparks a conversation which something great can come from. Um, yeah, and it's it's tremendously brave because I'm I'm a complete pussy when it comes to doing that. I, you know, I'll court controversy for a minute and then I'll back down. And I guess <laughs> I, I guess it's because I'm kind of, I guess I'm very cautious that maybe I'm not well researched enough or not well read enough. One of the problems of doing something like a PhD is you start to realise how little you know in the world, and that every little nook and cranny that you try and push has got thousands of people behind it who have dedicated their lives to it. And so now I've become very afraid of committing to much of anything because you know there's no absolute truths and you are very aware that someone in the room might know more so you know it, it, it's easy to come out with a you know like you know we're bashing click next e-learning there but you know what it would take is i i can have my mind changed quite quickly whereas someone like nick i, I feel whilst he's probably open to change his mind is probably made up on quite a number of things and, and he's he's prepared to argue a position I'm probably a bit of a pushover. Yeah, and I think I was having this conversation. So I, I was, I had someone podcast me yesterday, which was a real <laughs> awkwardness because I'm usually on your friend. Um, but I think, I think we need to continue with that flexibility, of having our minds change. You know, my take on CIPD one week is different than the other week. My take on the learning, but and I think, I think as soon as you become a, a little bit too rigid in your ideas, you you stop 
ask getting the you know you stop the questions being asked and you stop kind of questioning yourself because you start having this kind of belief that what you're what you're saying is perfectly right i think you can sometimes get the blinkers on yeah no i totally agree i totally agree so if i was to say to you right here ben you can have this billboard right outside a football stadium and thousands and thousands of people are going to see this this billboard what what message would you put on that billboard does it have to be about learning or kind of put no it can be absolutely anything person any of these questions can be personal or professional um what would i put on the billboard depends it depends which football stadium outside of i guess but the uh, uh don't, don't want to don't want to end up on the wrong side of a of a roma fan um so um, they look a bit they look a bit vicious at the moment so um what would i do there i think i i think it would be something to do with um the where we start this conversation about um about being uh, being mediocre and getting on well or something to that effect or you, you know not doing particularly well at school but it's not the end of the world i wasn't bad i mean i, I don't want to overplay my hand here i got all the gcse's you're supposed to get and other things like that so i wasn't a bad student i just had it was just relatively there was no known expectations of me i wasn't supposed to do anything brilliant other people were brilliant i was noise so uh, I, I guess I, I could do something about that the other thing is, and I guess the other thing is, is that you spend a lot of you, if you, you go to a place where there might be a, a, a lot of young people kicking about, spent a very large part of my, my teens and, and, and those formative years desperately trying to fit in, desperately not wanting to stand out and, you know, desperate to conform. And then when you get into a career or if you become an entrepreneur, uh, like I have, then all you do is spend your, your world desperately trying to stand out. Um, and so, you know, the, the, that desire to, to conform or that desire to, to blend in um, probably led to me being seen as, you know, relatively mediocre or an all right student or no one with any particular possibilities or anything else like that. Uh, and then that was reinforced by, you know, not doing so well at an A-level or dropping out of university. The things that came on kind of seemed to reinforce the model that I'd gone to, the model of mediocrity, um, which wasn't because I wanted to be seen as, I didn't want to be average. I guess everyone wants to be special, but I'd like to be seen as special whilst being completely normal in every way, shape or form. So, I don't know, some message around around that, um, that I spent the first half of my life trying to fit in and I spent the second half of my life Hopefully not half of my life. Uh, <laughs> trying, trying to stand out. Okay. Uh, so I go from that. Yeah. No. Cool. I guess I'm just aware, you know, of time and stuff, and we we need to jump off this probably in the next probably five ten minutes. But I want to know a little bit more about kind of HT two. I want to know more about Red Panda, the Learning Locker, and what's the other one called? Curator. Curator. Yes. Tell me, tell me a little bit about them. So we we make. Um, innovative software, mostly targeted towards service organisations and mostly for use by sort of professionals or leaders, people on the career ladder um, tend to be the sorts of folks that get on well with our software. Um, We started with Curator. So Curator was the the piece of software that came out of my PhD, which is about social learning. So it's a a structured social learning tool. The idea is you can create an online course, you know, anybody in your organisation would be capable of doing it, but the learning and development department tends to be where it plays. And you can curate lots of different bits of content 
to then facilitate conversations around them. And what we see is that the, the content is a brilliant trigger to lots of good conversations, lots of good learning conversations. So we see it used for, for lots of disparate sort of use cases from, from, from graduate onboarding to leadership to sales, but anything where it's worthwhile, people sharing content and, and then collaborating on what they would do differently about it. We, we do that with Curator. Then our second piece of software is Learning Locker. Learning Locker is the thing that, that embodies the X API. And the, the X API, to, to flash us back to the start of the conversation, is this way of logging what people have done in the learning experience. Now, Curator wasn't like a standard learning management system. In fact, we don't call it a learning management system. It's, it's more of an experience tool. It's a learning experience tool, something to create a course, to create an experience on. But it was hard to track, hard to understand what people had done because it didn't fit into the normal mold of, you know, doing a course, completing it, getting 60%. There was no 60%. It was a conversation. So the X API gave us a method to track that, and Learning Locker is where we put it. So Learning Locker is our log store. Technically, we call it a learning record store. And the idea here is that you can put data from lots of different sources, not just Curator, into the Learning Locker to help you analyze what's gone on in a learning journey, to help you automate different parts of of the learning journey and to aggregate it into a single source. That software is actually open source, so people can download, install, use it for free, even at an organizational level. So we've managed to do things that have gone to thousands and thousands of people using Learning Locker as the database, as the log store to try and bring data together. And then Red Pandas, our, our newest tool, newest kid on the block, still, still really in beta. And what this is a tool of, of sort of personalized learning, of, of helping people to set goals and to reflect on those goals as part of the learning process to see what it is they want to do. So in this part, we're trying to embody a tool of self-directed learning. If, if curators kind of directed learning, you know, within a range, it gives you some autonomy. You can take part in different conversations and all the rest of it. But somebody, somebody a bit like an instructional designer, maybe an instructional designer, has designed that learning experience. They've curated content and said, have this conversation, have that conversation, do it for four weeks. Red Panda's more self-directed. What are the goals you're trying to achieve? What do you want to be? Do you want to improve in your current role? Do you want to pivot to a new role? Or do you want to be promoted or something like that? And then how can we shape the goals and the purpose that you need behind, behind that ambition to actually to stick it together? All three tools work in a kind of ecosystem. So, you know, Red Panda can be your, your starting off point. That's where you state your ambition. Maybe part of that ambition is taking a course that's, facilitated on Curator. And of course, Learning Locker's taking the data both from Curator and other places and feeding it back to Redpanda to tick those goals off automatically as you go. Right. Redpanda fascinates me. I think this for, for me is going to be kind of a, the game changer between, you know, actually being, being able to um, kind of, yeah, kind of continue and make it, we use the word personalized um, quite a lot. But that's kind of what what it sings out to me. It allows it allows me more flexibility to kind of decide where I want to go. And I just the red panda is something, yeah, really fa really fascinating. I think um, curator. I think I did a MOOC um, yeah. a couple of months ago with you yeah. guys on that, and that that was awesome as well. An awesome, an, an awesome experience. Great. Well, I mean, that's you know that's one of the things that we do, <clears throat> especially with you curator. Although the others kind of embody it to a certain extent. Is you know we make it quite easy to get on and use our software. So 
if someone's thinking about how can I put together a more social learning experience and they can take one of our, our free massive open online courses and then use it for yourself. Because if you hate it as a learner or you don't rate it as a learner, there's no way you should be putting that into your organization. And it's so hard sometimes to actually get a demo of what some of these things are or how they work. That's a traditional problem with the learning management system is like they hide it away behind so many clicks and layers to actually see what the damn thing is. And, you know, that's reasonable because sometimes they need a lot of configuration and a lot of a lot of customization or configuration to make them work. But Curator is a bit more simple than that. And, and really it brings it back to that focus on the learner. If you enjoy it as a learner, there's a chance it might work for your organization. If, if you hate it, there's no way you're going to have the persistence to actually put it in somewhere. Yeah, completely agree. So just, just aware of time really. And so in, at the beginning of the lines, we kind of, I asked you for some numbers and um, kind of what you wanted to be when you grow up. Mm. So what I thought we'll do is, you know, Throughout life, we're constantly learning, we're constantly developing, and at no point do we turn around and go, right, that's it, stop learning, stop developing, you've grown up. Um, you know, this is a constant thing. So if I was to ask you the same question now, Ben, what is it you want to be when you grow up? What would you say? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say I don't know, actually, but I'd be kind of proud about it, if you know what I mean. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of pressure when you're younger, more perceived pressure to say that I want to be this. And, uh, and I guess my answer to that now is to be comfortable with not knowing what I want to be when I grow up. I guess the one thing that I, I would want to be when I grow up is in control. Um, and I guess that, that comes back to, to entrepreneurship and leading a company and other things like that. I'm probably unemployable uh, because I just do things or I don't do things or I turn up or I don't turn up and various other things like that. So, you know, I'm a complete sod when it comes to that sort of thing. And a lot of it comes down to, you know, this is, this is your life. For me, I, I do, I work a lot. That's, that's kind of my thing. That's what I do. I don't really have many hobbies or anything like that. What I do is work, but that's because I'm in control and it's my life and it's my passion. Um, so, you know, that would change drastically for me if I wasn't in control. What I want to be when I grow up is, is yeah, in control. Okay. Awesome. So the numbers, which I asked you at the um, beginning, these, these numbers are tied to a random list of objects, and the idea is it's pretty simple. You're on a desert island, and you've got these objects. So okay. your numbers were um, tied to a bottle cap, yeah, um, a thermometer, yeah, a button, yeah. and the twister map, the game. You know the map which you, which you yeah. play on. Yep, that one. Yeah. So, so what do you do with these items? Um. So, I mean, uh, what we're going to do with that? With the bottle cap and the button, I'm probably going to make some more twister, uh, some some more twister a little bit. So some things, some like special maneuvers, whereby if I land on the bottle cap or I land on the button, something cool happens. So I'd actually gamify my desert island experience. Maybe it'd be, you know, I get naked, go swimming in the sea every time you hit the bottle cap on a twister uh, or, or something like that, if that's the treat that I choose for me. Thermometer, I would just use to take the temperature of the desert island so I could bitch about how the weather is. <laughs> I'm, I'm British, so, you know, if I, if I don't, you know, we opened the podcast talking about weather. If I, if I can't chat about it being unseasonably warm or cold, I've got very little chat on me. So, you know, the thermometer is actually, actually vital to my existence on this desert island. Okay. Perfect. I think you've ticked them all off there. So, so Ben, I guess, you know, this is one of the conversations which I reckon we could easily extend to three hours, but we can't, unfortunately. But where can people find out a little bit more about Ben and kind of HT2 and stuff? So take a look at our website, ht2labs.com. Um, you can find me 
in all the usual places. The, the one that I'm actually using the most at the moment is LinkedIn. So um, do have a look at LinkedIn. It's not massively social, but it is where you'll find the most information about me and where I post updates and things like that. And I'm, I'm on Twitter um, and gone off it a bit of, of recent times. And I'm, I'm kind of withdrawing from Facebook a little bit. So um, I think uh, I think LinkedIn's probably the closest you'll get to me uh, at this point. Awesome. Well, I'll put all them in the show notes anyway. So Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, no, thank you for taking the time and, and the interest to, 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 to learn a little bit more about me, Danny. It's, it, it's very flattering. No problem. Well, you enjoy the rest of the day. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Danny.